Tonight, straight from the source, they've all surrendered 19 new mugshots for the history books. Now to the next phase, trying to clear their names. We have just learned that the Kraken wants to get Kraken. Sidney Powell asking for a speedy trial. Plus, the Kremlin says it's all a lie. Now strongly denying that Putin was behind that plane crash that presumably killed Yevgeny Prigozhin. The authorities now have their hands on the black boxes from the flight. We'll see what we learn from them. Also tonight, Spain's women's soccer team refusing to play as the country's soccer chief is refusing to resign all over that unwanted kiss at the World Cup. I'm Caitlin Collins, and this is The Source. All of the mugshots are now in. Now comes the legal maneuvering. Tonight, former Trump lawyer Sidney Powell is seeking a speedy trial, according to a new court filing. That makes her the second of the 19 defendants in the Georgia election interference case to do so. She, of course, is the one who's promoted those unhinged stolen election conspiracy theories, like the one about Hugo Chavez rigging the U.S. election from his grave. Obviously, this move comes after we just saw another former Trump attorney, Kenneth Cheeseborough, who also requested a speedy trial, and he might just get it. The judge responded with an October 2023 trial date. As for Donald Trump, his legal team is taking the exact opposite approach, and they want to push the trial back as far as possible. Meanwhile, Fulton County District Attorney Fonnie Willis has served notice she's prepared to start turning over a trove of evidence to defendants' attorneys exactly three weeks from now, September 15th. That comes as Willis is really facing her first big test in this entire case on Monday, when a hearing is going to be held over Mark Meadows' request to move his case from a state court to a federal one. It is almost certainly going to look like a mini-trial before the real trials get started. Georgia Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger has been subpoenaed to testify, along with his former lead investigator, during the 2020 election. Their testimony is likely to center around Trump's infamous Find Me Enough Votes phone call, in which he pressured Raffensperger to help him find votes that didn't exist so he could stay in power. Meadows, of course, was Trump's chief of staff at the time. He was on that call, and he is facing charges in part because of his participation in it. I'm joined tonight by Michael Moore, the former U.S. attorney for the Middle District of Georgia, and CNN legal analyst Carrie Cordero. Michael, let me start with you, because Sidney Powell is now asking for the speedy trial. Trump has been pushing back when others have asked for that. Obviously, they each have a right to when they want to have those trials happen. But how could this entire case be affected if Kenneth Chesborough and Sidney Powell both get these speedy trials? Yeah, well, I'm glad to be with you tonight. Georgia Georgia has a unique statute. It's called the Speedy Trial Act, and it essentially holds the prosecutor's feet to the fire. Uh, when a defendant asks that their case be tried, when they're indicted, they, the state gets one additional term of court. And in Fulton County, that means that they get an additional two months. So that would place this trial sometime before October. So the, the prosecutor had no choice but to schedule it, and the court had no choice to schedule it, because if the trial is not held by then, then the case is automatically judged an acquittal. So that's uh, that's a problem for the for the state in, in this case. Um, I, I don't think there's any possible way the other defendants will be ready. I think it's probably smart on Cheesebro's uh, behalf to go ahead and move forward. I don't know how he'll feel about being joined with with Ms. Powell, but I imagine there are other defendants who will be glad to have those cases uh, move first so they can watch the case. They'll learn what the witnesses say. They'll see what the evidence is. They'll get to read how a jury reacts to the arguments that are made. They'll get to hear the, the argument surrounding uh, attorney advice uh, in this case. 
And so that's uh, th those cases will go quick. They will not finish quickly. There'll be a long case. There'll be a ton of issues that come up. But I think what it does, is it delays everything else. Uh, but of course, all this hinges, frankly, on the hearing that we see coming forth on Monday uh, in federal court and whether or not the cases are removed. It may make some of this a moot point. Yeah, it's going to be fascinating. But on the speedy trial aspect of this, Kerry, Trump's brand new attorney, and by brand new, I mean he's been on the job for like three days now, Steve Sadow, he has said that Trump is seeking to sever his case from anyone who is making a similar request for a quick trial. That was before we saw this move by Sidney Powell tonight. But if the cases are indeed separated, some people like Kenneth Cheeseborough and Sidney Powell go, and maybe they're acquitted, we don't know. What does that mean for Trump's case here? Well, he's going to want to delay his case, and uh, and some of the other defendants will too, because I think part of what's going to happen here is they're going to drown the DA's office in motions practice, and uh, the former president is going to do it. Some of these other lawyers are going to do it. Some are going to want to go fast. Some are going to want to go slow. But I do wonder, Caitlin, the DA's office uh, has other matters to bring. If they're going to have to be doing some of the trials early, some of the trials later. Um, they're going to be stretched thin. And at the same time, they're going to have all of the resources of the former president and his team making motions to try to delay things as long as they can. Right. I mean, they've made very clear that they're going to pursue those legal maneuvers. They haven't actually pursued many of them yet. Michael, though, uh, one thing that has been a question is whether or not Trump would also try to get his case moved from state court to federal court. One person that we know seems unlikely to do so is John Eastman. We were talking to his attorney last night about the prospect of how this could actually happen, given he never worked for the federal government. This is what Charlie Burnham said. He wasn't being paid by the federal government. He didn't have a taxpayer-funded job. So how, can you, how is there any stretch of an argument that he was working on behalf of the federal government? He certainly wasn't working on behalf of the federal government, and um, we haven't made a final decision on that. You may wind up being right. We're not sure yet. You've made the counter argument very well. I mean, John Eastman didn't work in the government, but, but so far, Jeffrey Clark and Mark Meadows, we know they did. I mean, is it a stronger argument for them? Uh, a much stronger argument. I imagine if Mr. Eastman tries to have his case transferred, that clip will be played back at some point in court. I mean... <laughs> The, the, the statute to remove a case or transfer a case to the federal court is really about having federal executives, federal employees who have actions brought against them, criminal actions or civil actions, uh, having a right to have the case moved. And so it talks about their duties, talks about their job, talks about the things they do in the normal course. It's a pretty low bar. They've got to make a plausible argument and have a plausible claim that they were doing something connected with their employee, employment. And so here you've got Metas who said, look, I'm doing the task of a chief of staff. I've been asked to make telephone calls. I've been asked to schedule meetings. I've been asked to you know, do whatever the president asked me to do. And that is, in fact, what the job of the chief of staff is. The president will say, I am the president of the United States. I'm the executive. And under Article 2, I'm required to enforce the laws of Congress. And there are things like the Voting Rights Act. The Federal Election Commission is under my purview. The Department of Justice in enforcing the election laws is under my purview. Uh, and that, that gives him a claim. Now, whether or not the judge will agree with that, I don't know. But if there was ever a case that would be transferred because the chief, because of an executive federal employee, is there anyone more executive than the president of the United States? And these these counts, 154 of the 157 acts that the prosecutor alleges in her indictment uh, were acts committed uh, 
during the time that Trump was the sitting president of the United States. And so there'll be a compelling case to be made to transfer. I don't think it will fit to everybody. Um, the question at the end of the day, we, we just don't know the answer to this right now, is will there be an inclination by the court or even by the prosecutor to ask it that the whole thing then be transferred if some are successful so that she can put the case over one time? I mean, Kara, given what, what Michael just laid out, that Monday seems to be pretty significant for the, for the future of all of these, potentially, what happens in Mark Meadows' hearing. Yeah, well, it's the, you know, it's the first hearing on this issue. And so we'll see if there's more briefing that's requested by the federal judge uh, or any follow-up hearings that they have. Um, it's the beginning of this process as far as removal. Uh, there's different arguments that different individuals in this will be able to make. I think we have to separate the former president and any potential claim he might make for removal because the executive himself, there's questions about whether that individual, the for, a president, a president, um, would be considered for removal as a former federal officer. So there's a whole question about whether the president as an executive is an officer. I think Mark Meadows has really the strongest claim to the extent that anybody making this claim for removal um, has a good claim. He probably has the strongest case, again, for some of the reasons that Michael laid out. And as chief of staff, I wonder whether a federal judge will want to get into the business of deciding what of the functions of a chief of staff are political activities versus what functions are in their role as chief of staff to the sitting president, as Michael was describing. Um, Jeffrey Clark also will have a, I think, not frivolous claim given his role at the Justice Department. Um, that's not to say that all of them will be successful in their removal motions, but I do think that uh, there's some serious issues that the federal judge considering it will have to look at. We'll see what the judge decides. Michael, I have to ask you before we go about this tweet that was posted by one of Trump's campaign advisors, um, essentially a warning coming, coming from Chris Lasavita. He said, if you're a campaign pack scammer and you try raising money off the mugshot of Donald Trump and you have not received prior permission, in all caps, he says, we are coming after you. You will not scam donors. But I mean, please correct me if I'm wrong, but isn't a mugshot a, a public document? It's a public document. It's not a trademark, a copyrighted thing that he's he can claim to. So it, it is a public document. I mean, you know, maybe the one that they put out some months ago that was a fake. You know, they may claim that was their own individual artistic creation. Uh, I just don't think they're going to make much headway in the argument here. I mean, uh, I, I imagine we're going to be seeing the mugshot on, on T-shirts, both at the Democratic and the Republican National Conventions uh, as we go forward. Yeah, it's like that weird circle in the Venn diagram where it's like the overlap between people on the left and people right. on the right. Trump, they both want that T-shirt. Uh, Carrie Cordero, right. Michael Moore, thank you both for joining me on this Friday night. Always a pleasure. Thank Thanks, Caitlin. Today, we're talking about those mugshots. Everyone, all the 19 have turned themselves in. The final two, a pastor and a publicist, were the ones, the last two to surrender today. It was right down to the wire before that noon deadline. Both of the people that you see here are accused of trying to intimidate Georgia election workers. Georgia election workers like Ruby Freeman, who, of course, was falsely accused by Trump and his allies of trying to pull a fast one with the ballots that she was counting, simply carrying out her civic duty. You may remember when Freeman tearfully told the January 6th committee how her whole life was turned upside down by those very conspiracy theories that also led to death threats. There is nowhere I feel safe. Do you know how it feels to have the president of the United States to target you? 
Stephen Lee, as you see here, a pastor, showed up at the Fulton County Jail dressed in his Sunday best. Among other things, he is accused of taking part in an effort to influence Freeman to give false testimony to a grand jury. She actually called 911 on him in December 2020 after he showed up at her door. This is what he told police about that encounter. I, I knocked on the door earlier. Okay. And, I, and I've tried getting her message. She's, you know, she's terribly spooked. I'm not here to hurt her. I'm not here to mm -hmm. cause any problems or anything like that. As for Travian Cootie that you see here, she's the one grinning in her mugshot. And because this case really, truly has everything, she's a former publicist to Kanye West. Prosecutors say that Cootie once showed up at Freeman's home as well. She told her that she could be arrested if she didn't confess to election fraud claims, false election fraud claims, mind you, and that an armed squad of federal officers would come to her home within 48 hours if she didn't. She also allegedly threatened Freeman while they were inside of a police station. And of course, because they were inside of a police station, there are cameras and the incident was caught on body cam. All of that evidence will likely be used at their trials. Of course, they were the final two to get those mugshots today. Also ahead, Rudy Giuliani out of jail thanks to help from my next guest. He was actually with the former New York City mayor during his surrender. He helped free other Trump co-defendants also this week. We'll ask him about that. And the flight recorders have been recovered from the plane crash that is believed to have killed Wagner boss Yevgeny Prigozhin. What the Russians are now saying about the state of this investigation, stay with us. It was a busy week to be a bail bondsman in Atlanta. Donald Trump walking free after his arrest last night with an assist from the folks at Foster Bail Bonds. The former president, we are told, put up 10% of his $200,000 bond while the company covered the rest. He wasn't the only one who needed help, though. A second chance bail bonds, that is what it's really called, has also taken on several of Trump's co-defendants, including the former White House chief of staff, Mark Meadows, Trump campaign official Mike Roman, Two former Georgia officials, David Schaefer and Kathy Latham, who served as fake electors. And of course, the most prominent of those, Rudy Giuliani. Giuliani was seen at Second Chance shortly after he surrendered at the Fulton County Jail on Wednesday. And I'm now joined tonight by Daniel Madelon, the owner and CEO of a Second Chance Bail Bonds, who has had quite a week, Daniel. I mean, I know you personally walked Giuliani into the jail. I imagine you probably can't do that for all of your clients. Can you just kind of walk us through what that was like? Um, Caitlin, thank you for having me on this evening. I, I appreciate it. Um, it's, it's been a wild ride uh, for the last week. But essentially, we, we had to coordinate everything uh, for Mayor Giuliani and, and help assist in that due to the nature um, of this case. I mean, did did Giuliani himself call you? Did, did someone who works on his team call you? How did this even get, how does this even get started? So normally it starts through through the attorneys. Um, and we have a lot of great relationships with attorneys across the U.S. And and this one somewhat landed into our lap and they trusted us to handle the case for him. Yeah. I mean, he came with uh, with the former New York City commissioner, police commissioner, Bernie Carrick. He, I don't even believe he was there. Well, he had a Georgia attorney on the ground, Brian Tevis, who was with him. Um, I mean, did you did you yes. ever think that Giuliani would be a client of yours? Um, you know, you, you never know what to expect, but but in this industry, you know, anything anything's possible. And I understand that you also were part of helping the former chief of staff, Mark Meadows. You weren't there with him when he actually when he actually went into the jail, but 
Can you kind of describe that situation? You know, really what it comes down to is, is efficiency and, and the logistics, right? And that's something that we're experts are, you know, that we're experts in, we're, we're premier leaders in our industry in that. And that's, that's essentially why they trusted us to do this. And so when you went to the Fulton County Jail, I mean, we've been, you're probably familiar with it, much more familiar with it than, than many people are just given the nature of your work. You know, we've had so many people describe to us what it's like to to walk inside that jail. What's it like to walk in there with someone someone like Rudy Giuliani? Well, you know, everything is on uh, height and alert, but I, I will tell you the Fulton County Sheriff's Office and, and Pat, Sheriff Patrick Labatt has, has done an amazing job um, with this process. Um, so I can't speak more highly enough of them and, and their efforts to help us with this. And so you were there as Giuliani got his mugshot, I assume? We, I was in the facility. Um, we, they do not allow anyone to come into the back, but we were, we, we walked him into the front of the jail, and then at that point, they, they take him back. Did he say anything that stood out to you? No, he was, he was cool, calm, and collective, and and followed the process, and and we were in and out of there in uh, twenty minutes. Has it changed? Has your phone been ringing off the hook since everyone has sort of been talking about your specific business on national television? Yes, bail bonds. I don't think has gotten coverage like this in a long time. Um, but um, you know, we're we're glad that we were able to be here to help um, help these individuals out and um, and get them back back going in the direction they need to go. For those, uh, for those who haven't been through this process, you kind of can you walk us through? I mean, attorneys negotiate the bonds, you were saying, prior to their clients turning themselves in. What is the next step after that? Right. So the, there was, in this particular case, there was a consent bond that was negotiated prior to anybody turning themselves in. Then once, once that consent bond was received, that, that document, the, the actual consent order gets lo- uh, loaded into the system. And then once it's loaded into the system, then at that point, we can post the actual surety bond. What happens if someone doesn't pay their pay their bond back? What do you mean by pay their bond back? Well, essentially, if you're helping them and they're doing and you're putting up fronting the rest of it, I mean, what is the next step from that for for someone like a Giuliani in this process? Well, look, he's got great legal team and They'll they'll wait a court date and kind of work with the DA's office, you know, as this thing kind of carries along. Um, but if if someone was to fail to appear in court, obviously that would activate a whole completely different situation. Daniel Madelon, you've had quite a week. Thank you for taking the time to join us tonight. Thank you, Caitlin. Appreciate it. In true Trump fashion, he is fundraising off his infamous mugshot that came after he got his bond. And if you were wondering. What President Biden thought of it, he has weighed in, something he doesn't typically do. We'll tell you what he said next. Have you seen Donald Trump's mugshot yet? Just moments after he became the first president to ever have a mugshot taken, Donald Trump was fundraising off of it. And while the White House has gone out of its way time and time again to make a point of not commenting on the former president's legal troubles, President Biden did weigh in today when he was asked about his predecessor's mugshot. Have you seen Donald Trump's mugshot yet? Mr. President, are you worried at all about that? I I did see it on television. What'd you think? Handsome guy. Wonderful guy. Joining me tonight, former Democratic National Committee Communications Director Karen Finney 
and former Republican National Committee Communications Director Doug High. Thank you both for being here. Karen, obviously the president is being sarcastic there, but but what do you make of him, you know, making that joke about a mugshot that stems from the former president's efforts to, to overturn the election, given you know, Biden has centered his presidency on defending democracy democracy from people, he says, like Trump. Yeah, look, I think it was perfectly fine and, and appropriate. Obviously, it was sort of an off-the-cuff uh, comment. It wasn't, you know, a speech or, so, or something like that. And the other thing I would say is I think it's very wise on the part of the president and the administration. They have been very disciplined about not commenting in any way, shape, or form about any of uh, these four indictments and, and, the, and the legal uh, issues facing the former president and really stayed focused on the, their campaign as well as uh, running the country, which I think is absolutely the right strategy. Doug, last night Trump did an interview. He was talking about getting a mugshot taken. He said he had never heard the words mugshot before. He said it was uncomfortable, the, just the whole process. But, I mean, he's obviously now also trying to make it a lucrative process for him, campaigning mm-hmm. off of it. His first tweet in over two years was about that very mugshot. Look, everything that you just described is everything that we've seen from Donald Trump since the day he announced. It starts with him being a victim. Never heard of this. It was humiliating, all of that. And then the revolution must be monetized and merchandised. And this is a bit what we saw in Spaceballs. Spaceballs, the flamethrower. Trump, the indictment mugshot T-shirt. These all tie into the same thing. And it's about how they can raise money and monetize as much as they can on this for the campaign. But also we know the campaign and and the super PAC um, are paying Trump's legal bills. He's not paying them himself. And look, this is also strategically smart, which is a bit of a bizarre thing to say uh, when you talk about a presidential candidate and a former president uh, being arrested and indicted and with a mugshot and so forth. But in the short term, at least, as we learned in the debate, if, if most of the Republicans who are running against Donald Trump, Jonathan Martin said they're running against a name only, um, if, if they're doing that, backing him up every step of the way, why not do this? Yeah. And I should note, I mean, typically we hear from the Trump campaign pretty quickly when they've raised a lot of money. Uh, we, I reached out to several officials tonight. I haven't heard back if they if they did. Maybe that's an indication they didn't. I don't know. Karen, I do want to ask you, though, because speaking of the broader Republican field, Vivek Ramaswamy was asked today about kind of his vision for what he wants to do with downsizing the federal government. And he said he wants to treat it like, like Twitter. <laughs> enjoyed getting to know better. Elon Musk recently. I expect him to be an interesting advisor of mine because he laid off 75% of the employees at Twitter. Well, I want to lay off 75% of the employees of the federal government. You know, kind of like he did to Twitter, he turned it into X. That's kind of what I want to turn the federal government into is one big X. Um, I guess the first thing I'll say is, uh, Doug, that is the future of your party right there. <laughs> I think, I've, you know, you've got your work cut out for you. I'm just going to kick back and eat popcorn. Oh my goodness. That was crazy. Does anybody think that what Elon Musk has done with Twitter, I refuse to call it X, uh, does anybody think that's been good? I mean, he literally broke something that was working quite well. So I think that's a ridiculous idea. And, you know, just as we saw, Caitlin, you know, on your show with the sort of 9-11 conspiracies and, and sort of what we saw on Wednesday night, like, he's having fun with this. It, it, it seems like to him, you know, this is entertainment. He's a billionaire. He's, you know, he's running for president. If it doesn't work out, eh, he'll go do something else. I mean, those are not serious ideas. 
Uh, and they're not, that is not the way, you know, it's always easier also when you are an outsider who has no idea how things really work to just throw out these ideas when, you know, the truth is you can't really do that. There's a whole host of reasons why you can't that we won't go into here. I mean, it's just a ridiculous idea and ineffective. Doug? I mean, is well, that the future of your party? What do you think? Well, I would hope that Glenn Youngkin is the future of our party. You know, he's a governor who's polling very successfully in his own state. Obviously, a lot of Republicans are looking him to potentially run, uh, but also for, for the future. And he also understands how government works and how business works and, and where those two merge. Look, if, if you want to say we're going to lay off 75 percent of the federal government, I'd like to make the government leaner and not meaner, but less meaner um, and more effective. But how do you do that? Do you lay off 75% of the Veterans Administration? I don't think you do that. Do you do that at the State Department, the Department of Justice? Well, Republicans are talking about that, but that would be defunding uh, the police, as it were. So you're not going to do that. The Army, the Navy, the Department of Defense, you have to define how you're going to do that other than just having smart lines like, you know, some kind of a carnival barker. I guess you could at least call it the executive branch. It's already there. Oh, <laughs> there you go. Karen Vinny, Doug High, thank you both for joining me. Thanks. Up next, we have new developments on the crash that is believed to have killed Yevgeny Prigozhin. The Kremlin is adamantly denying that it has played a role here, but they have denied things that we have seen like this before. What does U.S. intelligence think? We'll tell you next. Tonight, the Kremlin is vehemently denying that it is behind that plane crash believed to have killed Wagner chief Yevgeny Prigozhin. A spokesperson for Vladimir Putin called the speculation that Russia was involved, quote, an absolute lie. After that plane fell out of the sky, though, Russia's civil aviation agency quickly confirmed that Prigozhin and two other key Wagner figures were listed on the plane's manifest. Citing early intelligence tonight, Pentagon officials say it's more likely that Prigozhin was indeed killed. U.S. and Western intelligence officials also tell CNN they do believe that it was deliberate. Russian investigators have recovered 10 bodies, they say, and flight recorders from the site, and that they are now carrying out DNA tests to confirm their identities. CNN's senior international correspondent Ivan Watson has covered the war in Ukraine and President Putin himself extensively. Ivan, I mean, we, they've got these flight recorders now, but they're in the hands of Russian investigators. I mean, what is the latest on the work being done tonight, and will we ever really find out what's on these black boxes? Well, that'll all be in the hands of the Russian authorities uh, to reveal that. Uh, Yevgeny Prigozhin is presumed dead. He was on the flight manifest, as were uh, several of his top lieutenants from the Wagner mercenary group. Uh, there are already memorials that have sprung up all over Russia uh, in honor of this man. The Russian president, Vladimir Putin, has come out expressing his condolences to the victims. His spokesman has said, well, it's not clear whether or not Putin would attend a funeral if it's confirmed, in fact, that Prigozhin's body was uh, recovered there on the scene. Uh, as you pointed out, the Pentagon, the British Ministry of Defense, they think that Prigozhin likely died aboard the plane. The Pentagon says it has seen no evidence that this could have been caused by a surface-to-air missile bringing down this plane. But CNN has conducted an analysis of the amateur videos that have come out, uh, of the evidence on the ground that's been revealed. Uh, and experts have told CNN they do not think this plane was brought down by weather 
or some kind of technical malfunction. Instead, there was some uh, kind of catastrophic incident because it looks like the plane was already blown apart as it was falling out of the sky. And this only happened maybe 20 to 25 minutes after the plane took off from Moscow. It was flying at an altitude of 28,000 feet. Then it suddenly at 6.19 p.m. jumped up to 30,000 feet and then started plunging and rising until it made its final plunge uh, to the ground. Now, flight trackers, they had seen this plane. This was known to be one of the planes that Prigozhin was believed to fly on. And in the last two months, they'd seen it flying back and forth between Russia and Belarus, periodically turning off its uh, a flight tracker. Why is that important? Because Prigozhin launched this brief but deadly mutiny uh, exactly two months before this fatal plane crash. And as part of a deal, the dictator of Belarus, Alexander Lukashenko, gave him safe haven and security guarantees to set up in Belarus. And the Wagner mercenaries set up a base there. So that's part of why they believe this was Prigozhin's plane that had been flying back and forth. Now, Lukashenko has come out on camera and he has said he does not know who caused this crash. He does not believe, he says, that his close ally Putin could have done it. Uh, his answer was, quote, it was too rough and unprofessional work for this to have been Putin. And he is, of course, very close to Putin. Ivan Watson, thank you for the latest. Joining me now, Bill Taylor, who served as U.S. ambassador to Ukraine in the George W. Bush and Obama administrations, a perfect person to talk about this with. Ambassador, I mean, does someone who threatens Putin's power, as Ivan just laid out, ever die unintentionally in Russia? I don't think so, uh, Caitlin. I think um, President Putin uh, felt challenged. He felt humiliated. I mean, Ivan did the right, uh, described it well. Um, when when uh, Prigozhin mounted that mutiny, that was a direct threat uh, to Putin. That was a direct challenge. Um, before, just before the mutiny, Prigozhin said this whole war against Ukraine was a lie that Putin had been lied to, the generals were incompetent, that there were no Nazis in, in Kyiv, there, there was no threat to Russia from, from Ukraine. These were all the stories that Putin had told the Russian people on why they were invading Ukraine. And, and that was a challenge to him. So you're right, Caitlin, that's exactly what he had to do. When you hear Dmitry Peskov vehemently denying today that, that Russia had anything to do the, with this or was behind it, I mean, What's your reaction to that? Because we were talking earlier about the point that if this did happen and Putin didn't know about it, it would similarly reveal, you know, a concern about his grip on power and what that looked like. Ivan mentioned that Prigozhin has actually got a lot of following. It was very popular among a lot of people, both on the both on the left and in the on the right and on the in the military. Uh, so there are a lot of Russians um, who don't understand um, why their one of their heroes, uh, Prigozhin, um, was killed. Uh, so that's probably why Peskov has to deny it. But it is so well established. Uh, I think there is very little doubt uh, that Putin gave the word, gave the order. Um, it was professionally done, exactly as as uh, as Lukashenko said. It was not. It was clearly a professional job, and so that that was that was where they were going with this. It sounds like there's no doubt in your mind that that Putin is behind this. There's no doubt in my mind, and and there, as you've pointed out, 
Um, he, Putin, has lied before. He, remember when they first went into to Crimea in 2014, the little green men? No, they were not Russian soldiers. Turns out they were, of course, Russian soldiers. Just before they invaded on, on uh, February 24th, 2022, um, a, a year and a half ago, uh, Lavrov came out and said he ridiculed the Western press, saying, oh, they're, the Americans are being hysterical. Uh, we're not going to invade. Well, we know what happened. So this is this is the kind of lies that they tell. Yeah, I mean, it's been 18 months since Russia invaded Ukraine, and they still don't even call it a war. They don't call it a war, a special military operation. You can go to jail uh, in Russia for calling it a war. You're exactly right. You did mention how loyal Prigozhin's followers were. I mean, we've seen these memorials where people are coming and laying flowers. We've seen people crying. Even though the Kremlin is denying it, do you think those followers are buying this or what is their response? And I mean, what does it say to anyone in Russia who may consider threatening Putin's power to watch a plane of someone who threatened Putin's power come crashing down in a ball of flames? Which is exactly why my view is Putin ordered that done. Um, he had to somehow regain this, this reputation as a strong man, as a leader, um, as someone you don't cross, um, because that reputation had been challenged. That reputation had been challenged by Prigozhin. Uh, so he had to try to reestablish that by giving this order. Um, and yes, I do believe that there are a lot of Russians um, who are not happy about that. There are a lot of military, there's a lot of soldiers general officers, other officers, soldiers who respected Prigozhin because he, he actually was a leader. He was a military leader that actually got something done. Um, it was one of the few orga military organizations that took a, a, a city, Bakhmut, as we know. So he had some respect within the military. Um, and I think the killing of him is going to have repercussions. We'll see. Ambassador Bill Taylor, thank you for joining with your expertise tonight. Thank you, Caitlin. Spain's women's soccer team is now refusing to play after that unwanted kiss at the World Cup, one you see in just a moment, unless the head of soccer that you see here resigns. He says he won't, claiming it was consensual. The player, of course, the other person there, says it was definitely not. We'll more ahead. Spain's World Cup champions now refusing to play. The team is standing with its star player, who has said time and time again that her boss's celebratory kiss was not celebratory for her and not consensual. Right away, Jennifer Hermoso said she, quote, did not like it. The Federation then put out a statement that appeared to quote her, seeming to say otherwise. But today, in her own words, in her own statement, she said not to put words in her mouth and said what happened was sexist and an out-of-place act. If you don't know what happened or you missed this, it was the moments after Spain won its first ever World Cup. That is the president of the Royal Spanish Football Federation, Luis Rubiales, standing alongside the Queen of Spain and other dignitaries when you can see that he grabs Hermoso's head and forcibly kisses her on the mouth. Rubiales today gave a defiant speech, refusing to resign. That speech met by applause by an audience that I should note was mostly male. He described the kiss as mutual and blamed it on what he called, quote, false feminism. Hermoso and the rest of the winning team say they are not going to take, take the pitch again until he has been removed. I'm joined tonight by Christine Brennan. Christine, thank you for being here. I mean, 
it's very clear that this was not this was not mutual. But but what is the round of applause that Rubiales got today uh, say to you? It's I think that last gasp of uh, machismo, uh, misogyny, sexism, Caitlin, that the Spanish Federation uh, wanted to show. Um, what we are seeing here is now on you know display front and center. The um, incredibly difficult working conditions, and it is it is a workplace that these wonderful Spanish players, the World Cup winners from just on Sunday, that they've been dealing with now for at least a year, that they've been complaining about and talking about. And there it is. If there was any doubt what was going on behind the scenes, well, you don't have to doubt anymore because now you see it front and center. And I cannot imagine that Rubiales, the the president of the federation, obviously under such fire right now, I can't imagine that he can last in a even another day or two, because the Spanish government, as well as all of the Spanish women's players and some of the male players, they want him out and they are being very vocal on that subject. Yeah. 56 other female players are backing this boycott. So you think he's on thin ice. I mean, you don't you don't think this lasts much longer. I can't imagine. I mean, what has been so wonderful about something so awful, Caitlin, is that these players are speaking out and that the world is seeing the conditions that they've been working in. I mean, uh, you know, there is, as, as we know, from a year ago, there were 15 players who complained about the coach and the working conditions and, and his, his tactics and their health and well-being. And no one listened to them. No surprise now that we see the Federation president and what he's up to. And uh, and 12 of those players did not make the World Cup team uh, and were left behind. And so now it's clear that there's an absolute, you know, just a mutiny uh, among all the Spanish players. And they have... So they're still celebrating the, the World Cup victory. But in less than three weeks, they have got to try to qualify or about three weeks qualify for the Olympics. So that Spanish women's team that just won the World Cup has to be together to try to make it to the Olympics. And the Spanish Federation has to deal with this before then. I noticed. Yeah, you mentioned the, the coach. I noticed in their statement they use the plural managers need to be removed before that they will before they will play again. But you, this isn't just about one team. I mean, this is an entire sport and industry that has been, you know, dogged by sexism. Do you think this is going to be a reckoning for women's soccer? I do, Caitlin. Obviously, I'm optimistic on this, but I actually think this will be an incredible watershed moment, just as that Women's World Cup, so many positive things about it, the 32 teams, the great TV ratings, Australia just off the charts. Well, now this. And this is, you know, if we're watching women's sports and we get a chance to see this, there it is. And it's all the good and the bad. And I cannot imagine that there are many people around the world right now who are looking at this and saying, oh, great. Yeah, this is wonderful. No, these these men have had their way with these women for a long time. And that time is up. And I cannot imagine if the Federation itself doesn't handle it. The Spanish government will. If the Spanish government doesn't, FIFA, the worldwide governing body. And what they should do, I believe, is look at every single country, have a have a hotline, have an anonymous tip line where uh, female athletes, these soccer players from all around the world can make complaints. Because if it's happening in Spain, and we know the U.S. with the Sally Gates investigation last year, uh, happening in the United States, these same kind of issues over the years in the U.S., Spain, the U.S., where else? And this is a game that has been filled with misogyny and sexism. The women have gotten short shrift for decades, and now is their time to speak out. And man, oh man, are they speaking out. It is absolutely wonderful to see that the world is now seeing exactly what is happening in the women's game.
Yeah, they certainly are. Christine Brennan, thank you. Thank you, Caitlin. It was uh, an unusual way to kick off the first Republican primary debate with a breakout country music song. These rich men know the rich men. Lord knows they all just want to have total control. Want to know what you think. Want to know what you do. Why is this song striking such a nerve in this country right now? Well, the singer, Oliver Anthony, that you saw there is responding to that question. We'll tell you what he said next. Oliver Anthony, the singer of the breakout number one hit, Rich Men, North of Richmond, is responding to his song being used at the opening of the Republican primary debate on Wednesday night. It was funny seeing my song in the... It was, fun, it was funny seeing it at the presidential debate because it's like I wrote that song about those people. The first question at the debate, of course, was about how his song is striking a chord with Americans. Anthony said it is aggravating, his quote, the Republicans are trying to identify with him. But he calls out the left for also, in his words, trying to discredit him. He says the song is not about politics. He said it has nothing to do with Joe Biden. It's a lot bigger than that. Thank you so much for joining us. CNN Primetime with Abby Phillips starts right now. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.